0: TED Audio Collective. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles, and ditch cumbersome calendar invites or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive.
1: Everyone, you're listening to After Hours. I'm Young Me, and I'm here with Felix and me here. Happy Thanksgiving, guys! Happy
2: Thanksgiving! Happy Thanksgiving! So
1: we're taping this a few days early because of the holidays. Are you excited?
2: Super excited! My favorite holiday.
1: It is amazing, right?
2: There's something very special about. It's a holiday for everyone, and then just the idea that not much happens actually, yeah. Other than you get together with people you really love and you eat. You know, there's no complicated gift giving. Well, no, the spirit of it is very pure. Yeah. yeah I think I it's agree. wonderful.
1: So, in honor of the holiday, we have decided to devote today's entire episode to food.
2: Food. 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 <laughs> <laughs> food.
1: Okay. So, we're going to talk about trends we love, trends we hate. If you're into food, this episode is for you. Sounds, Sounds great. great. Okay. Okay, who wants to get us started?
3: So when it comes to food, I'm always happy to go first. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, a while ago, everyone was thinking about food trucks. But the really amazing trend in food for the last several years, which I just absolutely adore, are food halls, Mm. which are effectively larger spaces where you have very small providers often who are taking very small spaces. You have a communal eating area and really no chains to speak of at all. There are so many good ones now all over the place. And so what is the beauty of this? The beauty of it is, first off, it is hospitable to smaller players. You don't actually need to go in with scale. The actual entry costs are relatively low Mm -hmm. because actually the person who's providing the real estate does a bunch of the work Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. you would normally have to outfit for a place. And then, of course, from a consumer experience – You get variety and then you you go with a friend or friends and everybody gets what they want and it's loud and it's rambunctious and the price point is amazing. Mm -hmm. I think my eyes opened up the most when I went to the timeout market in Mm -hmm. Lisbon Ah. and the one in Lisbon is spectacular and is actually where the best chefs are. So it's not even like some secondary thing, right? You're getting like cutting-edge chefs, providing great food, great price points and it's just a huge warehouse, effectively, near the water. And there's just lined on the outsides by little stalls oh. and then huge tables in the middle. Mm-hmm.
1: So they're popping up all around Boston as they're well. They're popping up right? yeah, all yeah, around everywhere. Boston. everywhere. I
3: think every city. One of yeah. them I know well is urban space in midtown Manhattan. Yeah. And I think it kind of relates to some of our conversations last year in our food episode about scale and kitchens. And, yeah. you know, this yeah. is in a way... The economics, right? Yeah, the it's economics like of these so things.
2: Oh, expensive. Like, yeah. I think... In, part, real estate prices are one one really big driver. So like I think if you
3: look at some of this, if you want like a regular sit down restaurant, it almost gets to the point now where you need to do like $4 million a year Mm -hmm. in revenue. Mm -hmm. That's not so simple to do. (laughs) It's also interesting because like even the commitments you make. So you can just do a year lease. Then you kind of just go in there for a little while and you try out ideas. I don't know. I just love food halls.
2: Such a big part of the attraction is just all the food we can select. Yeah. And yet, when you and I go, we always end up eating pizza. (laughs) <laughs> Indeed, we've been to urban space together. I in know,
4: fact, yeah,
3: we know. always eat pizza. I know there's nothing wrong with that, but the illusion of choice is very oh, important.
2: Yeah. Oh, it's the illusion
1: <laughs> of choice. My problem with these is, if I go, I tend to find myself at places like that in the middle of the day for lunch, as yeah, opposed uh-huh. to dinner. Sure, yeah. And I don't love a complicated lunch, so oh. I always end up getting something more simple. And so I feel like I don't really take full advantage of the oh, full yeah, experience. Okay. So, it but I think that's a that's a young knee problem yeah. <laughs> essentially. I'll give you
3: another weird example of this. Now, a subway station near Time Warner Center has been converted into a food hall. Yeah, I mean, it is literally a grimy subway station that has now become a food hall yeah. and a pretty darn good one. Yeah, oh. and then there are the themed really nice. ones like the Great Northern Food Hall. Yeah. So there's some nice themes as well.
1: Oh, okay, all right, that's a good one. Okay, Felix, you have a trend you love, hate?
2: Uh, I have a trend that I find interesting. Okay. So, in an earlier episode, we talked about meatless burgers. And we were excited, we tasted we thought they're pretty good. Now I see many, many ideas how to reduce meat consumption, Mm. but not do away with it. (laughs) So it's almost like meat light. One random example is the James Beard Foundation has what they call the Blended Burger Project. And it's a competition, takes place every year. And the task is make an amazing burger and... 25% 25% of the meat has to be replaced by mushrooms. And so the idea is oh, actually, even if you make changes at the edges, it can do yeah. amazing thing for what it tastes like. Mm. And, but the other thing is they say in America we eat about 10 billion burgers each year. And so if every one of those burgers had 25% of which were mushrooms, that's like doing away with 3 million cars yeah, wow. annually. Like it's small changes wow. that have really a profound impact. And I think the scope for these kinds of adjustments is
4: enormous. I love this suggestion.
3: I think it's so good. I mean, in part because of what you're saying, which is sometimes there's too much of an emphasis on elimination as opposed to reduction. And then the second is I don't think people appreciate how much meat consumption drives environmental damage. I mean, it's just... And then also I like this idea just of working on the edges. You don't have to go for the full 100% solution here. But I
1: also love this idea that when you put a constraint on what a chef can do. In many ways, it spurs the most amount of creativity.
3: Is this a transition to your recommendation of Chopped, (laughs) (laughs) the TV
2: show on Food Network?
1: (laughs) That is sort of the But they can come up with really interesting things. There are also
2: amazing efficiencies in production because you can grow mushrooms vertically. You can produce a million pounds per acre. Wow. That's fantastic.
1: Mushrooms continue to be underrated. You don't love mushrooms? You don't love mushrooms? It's Okay.
2: It's a There's a lot of different ones. Yeah,
3: my okay. understanding is actually that a lot of the mushrooms with different names are actually the same mushroom. There are no really significant differences, but they're all branded differently. Anyway, oh. I'll I'll look into that. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll go
1: next, because mine has a kind of an environmental oh, angle okay. as well. And it is the seemingly intractable problem of too much plastic in how we store, mm. package, mm. Mm-hmm. and even consume food. So a couple of years ago, BBC's Blue Planet They had this documentary which gave Mm. us a visual representation of how much plastic ends up in the ocean. And you couldn't walk away from that without just being utterly horrified. And by the way, companies, in particular the big multinationals, Mm. are really focused on this problem. Mm -hmm. And the problem is every solution creates new problems. Mm. It's a really, really hard problem to solve. The reason plastic is so ubiquitous is it's an amazing, amazing product. Material. Yeah. For yeah. one thing, it is really light and durable. Yeah. So if you, for example, could snap your fingers and replace all the plastic used in packaging with either metal or glass, the environmental impact of that would be devastating because everything we shipped would weigh so much more. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so the climate damage would yeah. increase if yeah. we did that. <laughs>
4: yeah.
1: It's an amazing product because it keeps food safe and fresh. So a cucumber unpackaged, will spoil in three days. If it's wrapped in plastic, it lasts for two weeks. And the reason that's important is because a ton of food waste is three times as bad for the planet as a ton of packaging waste. Finally, plastic provides utility in so many multi-purpose ways. So, for example, there are so many towns and cities that have begun to ban plastic bags at grocery Mm checkout lines the first thing that happens when a city or a town bans plastic bags at checkout lines is the sale of plastic garbage bags spikes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the reason is people take those grocery bags and they use them multiple times, in particular to line the garbage. And so once you take that away, they end up buying garbage bags, which are much worse for the planet because they're much sturdier and they Mm -hmm. use a lot more plastic. The second thing that happens is that people start to use these canvas totes, which are in many cases are made from cotton. So a Danish study concluded that you have to use a cotton tote bag 7,000 times to break even on the environmental impact. And if it's organic cotton... Those are the worst. You have to use those 20,000
3: times. But I think what you're also saying, young me, is a simple rule of less plastic is actually a little naive, which is Mm -hmm. you always have to contrast it with an alternative.
4: That's right. And the
3: interesting thing to me about what you said is there's these surprising second and third order effects. Yes. And so simple rules like less plastic are actually complicated and and not quite right. At least
1: in my mind, the most promising rules just require a lot more investment and a lot more commitment and are going to take some time. So for every multinational to go through and change their production processes to use less plastic, that's absolutely necessary. Yeah. But it's not an indiscriminate thing. You have to be really mm-hmm. selective about yeah. where you do that, and it takes some time. Yeah. We have to rethink our products. So think about, like, a tub of laundry detergent or a bottle of shampoo. Instead of buying a bottle of shampoo, if you got a tiny little box— of little capsules that were super super concentrated, and that was your shampoo, and you just used a little yeah. capsule a every yeah, time. Exactly. Huh? Just yeah, exactly. Tiny little. Drop. We would just, in terms of the shipping and packaging and all the rest, that like so solutions come from rethinking things like that, mm-hmm. and
2: they come from rethinking holistically, right? Like not yes. realizing that you're like. In supermarkets, when they ask paper or plastic, for years, I would always say paper, of course. Like, who wants plastic? Because my intuition was that, oh, plastic is so much worse than paper. Until I read this analysis that actually this was the wrong choice. Like, if you're offered paper or plastic, paper is, because it uses so much water to produce produce paper, (laughs) it's like so much worse than the plastic. At the same time, I do feel once you really pay attention to it, there are so many opportunities for you to use less plastic than you do. So for instance, like what's killing me when I see people shop for apples... Like, you're buying three apples. Why do these three apples have to live in a plastic bag? Yes, I understand they offer the plastic bag because it makes checkout faster, but that's not the right choice. You can put these three apples in your basket and you'll be totally okay. Or how often do you go to a drugstore and you buy two things? And without even asking, they will put the two things in a yeah. plastic bag. So. I agree it's complicated. Yeah. But there's is also, also like so simple many, yeah. like once you pay attention. I agree.
1: But in addition, I think it's really important to note that only about 10% of plastic actually ever gets recycled. Yeah. And so for all of our efforts in sorting our garbage and it goes on a boat and it gets shipped somewhere, it still often ends up in some landfill somewhere yeah. or yeah. in yeah. the ocean. And so most of it doesn't get recycled. And so this vision of a perfectly circular economy or every piece of plastic never ends up yeah. in the ocean and it always gets recirculated, we are so, so far away from yeah. that.
2: Have you seen these videos on YouTube about zero-waste people, zero-waste living? It is amazing. Amazing. And, you know, it's a complicated lifestyle because <laughs> yeah. you take vessels everywhere because you're refilling those same vessels. but. Just seeing what people do if they really care, I find it like super, super inspiring. It's inspiring. I couldn't do I half mean, of it, but yeah. it's like, oh boy, like there is so much opportunity to rethink. Yeah, the yeah I, that's exactly what right. use
1: make every day. Companies yeah. need to use less plastic. We all have to. Yeah. But getting rid of it altogether, it's yeah. a challenge. That's a great one. Okay, who wants to go next?
2: I have one that sort of relates to what you just talking about. Okay. It's about sustainability in the sense of the trend to vertical farming. Oh yes. They're
1: cool to look at. Like if you yeah. see one of them, yeah. they're amazing. They're really to amazing. See. Yes. yes. But yeah. do they work?
2: So the first thing you have to understand is like what's the impetus for doing this? And I think by two thousand and fifty there will be roughly ten billion people on the planet and about two thirds of these people will live in urban settings. So the idea of getting food the way we produce it now into dense city centers is just just the transportation and storage mm. issues and everything. So if you could move food production closer to where people actually live and are going to consume the food, that would have dramatic advantages. And there are some sort of low-hanging fruit, for instance, water consumption. You can reuse that same water over and over and over again. So water consumption drops dramatically once you go to urban-type vertical farming. So that's Mm -hmm. sort of the good news. You don't need herbicides, you don't need pesticides, because it's in enclosed spaces that you can control in a way that you cannot easily control if you're out in the countryside. The single biggest impediment right now is the cost of light. So it's done with LEDs, and LED light is still relatively expensive. So for many applications, it's probably not profitable to do vertical farming. But if you can bring down the price of light, and of course, LEDs have already changed so dramatically over time. And then the other really interesting opportunity is plants that grow outside actually only use about 6% of the available sunlight for photosynthesis. Mm. And you could probably get plants that use even less. So if we could essentially have plants that grow in the semi-dark, then if you count transportation and everything, then the economics start looking really interesting. But we're not there yet. So
1: much of the food industrial complex is about just the movement of food. Exactly. So this idea that you might have these small vertical farms. And by the way, if you don't know what we're talking about, just Google vertical farms, because the photographs (laughs) of these things are kind of oh, amazing. Are
2: amazing. And it's also, because we're sort of in the R&D phase, we often see it concentrated, but there's also visions of the future where everybody has a little vertical far. Yeah, I like That's that great. trend. That's interesting. Sort of a glimpse of what the future will look That's like. That's great. Wow. That's a good one. Okay.
1: I have a good one. Go for it. <laughs> a little bit less serious. This is a trend CBD menu (laughs) sightings.
3: Oh, my God. Oh, yes. I don't know. What do I make of it, though? I don't know. I I see it everywhere. Have you tried it?
1: Okay. So, first of all, CBD is a compound that occurs in cannabis, not to be confused with THC, (laughs) which makes you high. (laughs) CBD does not make you high, but can induce relaxation. So, I've now been in so many restaurants where they have CBD ingredients in so many foods and in drinks as well. So many hotels in New York, for example. Mm. The James New York Nomad Hotel has a CBD-infused room service menu.
4: <laughs> if you just take a drive up
1: to Vermont or New Hampshire, Maine, there's so many restaurants out there that have CBD-inspired menu items. So have you tried it? Okay. <laughs> More information than you need to know, but I'm already kind of the amount of relaxed that I need to be. I
4: feel <laughs> <like>. Okay.
1: <laughs> so, So I don't really feel... Like, oh, I need something to relax me. I feel like I can control my relaxation level pretty well. And also I have my go-to cocktail. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm not the right person to ask, is what I'm saying. It's
2: interesting, though. Now when I walk through the city, there's cannabis smell everywhere, (laughs) right? Everywhere. (laughs) And I'm very split. Like, do I want to live in a society where everybody is super relaxed? I don't think so. I sort of like the edgy, you know, people are trying to do things, ambitious, fast. It's too much relaxation for me. I don't, I'm don't. i not in favor <laughs> of so, relaxation.
4: So
3: I don't know. It all sounds okay to me. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but I want to make sure I understand that yeah. what is the connection to marijuana and THC? Yeah. Okay, it is extracted from yes, cannabis. But it's not,
1: it's not the stuff that makes you high. That's THC. But it
3: does relax you. It does
1: relax you without making you high.
3: I
4: see. Okay. Yes.
1: But you know, it's funny because I've heard, again, I'm not a big CBD. I don't even know why I said big. I'm not even a little CBD consumer. But there was a recent story about this basketball player who was on a plane. He took a CBD edible, he had a panic attack, and oh, so wow. then he got suspended. I don't know what that, what does that signify? Maybe yeah. it, it does ha- I don't know. It feels uh, a little
3: faddish to me, but I don't know. I haven't tried it. So this could be another special, like our Beyond Meat segment. We so all, we
1: all try? We
2: all try a little CBD product or something. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We'll do it like a super relaxed after-hour
4: session. <laughs>
2: exactly. <laughs> so
1: it'll be, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Followed by a long silence. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay.
3: So, you know, I've been a fan for a long time of combining different kinds of passions. And in particular, food is a big passion, but travel is a big passion. And so the whole area of culinary tourism is fantastic, I think. I think it really hit me once when I was with my family and we were in Paris and we were not thinking about our meals. And so we would end up eating at like tourist traps. And the food was Mm. not good. And I was so angry with myself. I was like, we're in Paris and we're eating bad food. Something is desperately wrong. (laughs) And that made me really think hard about when I travel, I really want to have food be a good part of my experience. And so you have to think ahead. You You have to like do some research and you have to really do the work. So true. And so that's one piece of culinary tourism. But the part of culinary tourism that I wanted to talk about is we've had some wonderful experiences with cooking classes. Mm -hmm. And in general, cooking classes are amazing, but especially when you travel, cooking classes can be fantastic. So we've done uh, dumpling making in people's homes in China. It's such a great way to get in touch with local culture and people. And the most recent version of it, which I think is spectacular, I was with a friend in London, and there are these organizations that effectively take who are typically refugee women and they set up cooking classes using their home cuisine. Uh-huh. So the organization in London is called My Grateful. There's one in the US called League of Kitchens and there's one in New York called Tanabel. And effectively you pay $50 or $100 mm-hmm. and you go and you have a wonderful meal cooked from a country which has had political problems. The one we went to was mm-hmm. a Syrian refugee and She talks about the meal. She talks Hmm. about the food. Oh,
1: this is so lovely.
3: It's completely lovely. It's interesting because it is somewhat gendered. But in these countries, cooking tends to be somewhat gendered. But these are also women who may not find it that easy to find gainful employment in different ways. And this becomes a really Hmm. important part of the way they make their way in the world. And, you know, the amazing thing about food, of course, is it brings people oh, together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and this feels like such a visceral manifestation of that connectivity. Yeah. So the other beautiful thing about this is yeah. you might go with a friend, but there are other people there who you don't know. Yeah. And then you have this person who's your guide to this world who is also in some sense a newcomer to your world. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I think cooking class is A, but then cooking class is when you travel, and then also – Cooking classes where you're interacting with people from all around the world is just a spectacular experience.
2: It's powerful because it's a way to experience the local culture that is really different. I love the ones where you first go out and you shop. That is really amazing. And especially because the
3: markets are so spectacular. The markets themselves are so so interesting. The markets themselves are so much fun. Or I
2: remember we did a cooking class right before Easter, and it was offered by an Italian lawyer. And she did this sort of as a hobby, And she had invited two of her friends to come join us. And at every step of the meal preparation, there was this big Italian discussion around how to actually do it. (laughs) Everybody (laughs) insisted that their grandma was exactly right. You walk away and you think, wow, I have a glimpse of what life is really like. That's fantastic. That's
1: so good. Okay, Felix, you have another drink?
2: Yes, I have a fast tip after fast food. And fast fashion, we now have fast whiskey. So it's actually fascinating to think about. Of course, long maturation, you think, is part of the quality of the whiskey. And I always thought of it... Maybe this is just like the business person in me. Oh, my God, you sit on all this inventory. <laughs> and you have to wait forever. Like if you're a whiskey startup, basically there's nothing really to sell for the first 18 years. And, but actually, the real cost is no experimentation. Hmm. You basically cannot try anything because you have to wait for years. Say you try like a tweak on a flavor. And then you wait for years and years and years, and it turns out, oh, it's actually really terrible. And so fast whiskey (laughs) has this promise. uh, Maybe it'll solve the inventory problem. But I think, first and foremost, it'll give us a real opportunity to experiment. Mm. There's a company, Endless West, that does this. So their whiskey takes about 24 hours to produce. Oh my gosh, (laughs) the reviews are decidedly mixed.
1: I have to tell my husband about this. If I had to point him to one particular place.
2: So I think Lost Spirits is the company that gets the best reviews. So they're relatively slow. It takes six days to make (laughs) their whiskey. And you will remember, if you tell your husband, it's called abomination. (laughs) Purists must be horrified. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But what I find had never occurred to me that you can't experiment if you have a slow product.
3: But it also introduces the possibility of flavorings, I assume, and small batches and that comes with experimentation. Yeah, that's very exciting.
1: Okay, that's a good trend. Okay, do we have time for one more? Because yeah. I have a trend I really like. Yeah, yes. okay. So it used to be that if you went to a movie theater to watch a movie, you know, maybe you'd get some popcorn and a drink. Movie theaters have really changed. So not only have the seats changed and more and more of them are reclining, but the food has gotten so much more elaborate. Hmm. Sometimes there's a restaurant that will deliver the food. Where do you go to see movies? <laughs> <laughs> it is the closest thing. To Mm -hmm. a first-class experience that you'll ever Mm. get.
3: You mean a first-class air flight? Yes.
1: So first of all, you're sort of captive. (laughs) Secondly, (laughs) you can recline your seat back, like way, way back. There's a little tray that comes out in front, and then you watch a movie. And also, it's dark, so no one judges you while you're eating (laughs) and then also there's a lot of alcohol choices and the rule of drinking alcohol when you're flying is that any alcohol you drink in the air doesn't count so I apply that same rule when I'm in the Uh (laughs) movie, so it doesn't count
2: wow so do we have one in Boston that's like
1: this oh there's so many Felix you need to get out of your
2: house no I'm going to the movies all the time I have never ever seen okay
1: that's you know why because you go to the little house. he's going to the Angelica he goes to the little art house theater yeah, no, you. I suffer for my
4: art. You need by watching
3: boring movies.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So you're like Young like, me's watching the Avengers. Yeah. With, oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. You yeah, have to try. That's this. great. Oh, okay. Yeah, I okay, will. All
1: right. Okay. I have a pick. Which is kind of a trend also. I like so you like that? It's okay. like a nice transition. Stay with the so the trend is how companies are increasingly using their takeout packaging, I'm talking about restaurants, as a form of branding. Mm. An example of this, there are cities where the sweet green salad bowl is ubiquitous on the streets. So the best example of this is Sugarfish. It's a sushi restaurant. They're mostly in LA, although they're now a couple of locations in New York. And if you don't live in either one of those places, just go online and Google Sugarfish. And the photos you get of their takeout packaging for sushi is really fantastic. You should just get it for the packaging.
3: So describe it. What is it? So
1: it's everything you want in packaging as branding. It's functional. It's convenient. It's beautiful. It's informative. It generates an emotional reaction. And it really
2: stands out. It's really like you will not. Yes.
1: It's beautiful. It's really beautiful. It's like this.
2: Oh, that is very nice. See? That is beautiful. See,
3: That is very nice. If
1: Steve Jobs could package sushi, this, this is, is how he would, would package it.
3: That is pretty good. That's yeah, it's so a nice okay. one, All so right, you got to check yeah. it out. They're in New yeah. York now. So. so I have a pick, which is somewhat food-related too, which is I was just thinking and admiring what I think of as the perfect, best kitchen appliance
4: ooh.
1: there is. Ooh, I'm interested. Ooh. Which,
3: of course, is the stand mixer. The stand mixer (laughs) is, for any baker, absolutely amazing. I
1: forgot you're a baker.
3: And stand mixers, the interesting thing about them is, first off, they're dominated by KitchenAid. And KitchenAid stand mixers are spectacularly good. If you think about the design of a stand mixer, it is so elegant and it is so beautiful. And the way the bowl interacts with the (laughs) mixing element and it scoops up everything, it is almost like It's amazing. It's magical. Yeah. What I found out furthermore, though, is effectively the design of the stand mixer has not changed in 90 years. Oh,
2: I was just going to say, we have a stand mixer that is probably 25, 30 years old. They're so good. And it's perfect. And what's interesting about KitchenAid is, which
3: is part of Whirlpool. I love my stand mixer. Stand mixers are amazing. (laughs) Once you start using stand mixers, you will never stop. You cannot go back. You cannot go back. But the interesting thing to me about this, Felix, is the fundamental design has not changed in 90 years. And in fact, the elements... You know, the mixing tools have been made for the last 80 years in a way that they're completely adaptable across models. That just simple K design, which is so good. And now KitchenAid has started to be a little more designy. So they have like really beautiful colors and mixtures of things. But the fundamental design and the fundamental functionality of a stand mixer is not to be missed in any kitchen. And every time I use one, I marvel at it. And just the idea that it's actually an 80, 90-year-old technology just warms my
2: heart. Fantastic! I love stand mixers. We should form a stand mixer club. I, I, like, I
1: was just going to say. The, with the really... Yeah. I don't need to be in that club. Just.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Once you use a stand
3: mixer, you will... I remember the first time I used one, I was like, this is so good. Yeah. It just is so good. It makes everything and easy. Also, and the product, you can taste the difference when you use a stand if I mixer. I let this go, and you guys would I, just can, keep going and, can and going.
2: stand there and... Why, like, if you have flour and butter... You know how sometimes the butter is not to, quite soft enough? Yeah. And you see how it gets incorporated? It's bringing a tear to my I eye. Could, I could stand there for <laughs> hours and
3: watch it. It's so true. Okay, stand mixers. That's my pick. If you don't mm-hmm. have one, get one. My if goodness. you
2: do, just treasure it and love it even more than you do already.
1: Felix, I don't know how you're going to top that one.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm not. Okay. So I'm, I'm taking us in a different direction. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Good. Okay. I cannot possibly okay. compete. Okay. That was like, yeah, that was, that was just like maybe was, the best recommendation I, we ever I, had actually, on After Hours. Not
1: what I was going to say, but okay.
2: <laughs> so you know how I love maps? Mm. Anything that yeah, comes maps, in the form graphics, of a map or a graphic, yeah. I really love. The only love. thing
1: that makes him happier than a map? Is an interactive map. Yes, that <laughs> yes. is so true. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> yes. yes, I do know yeah. Felix. I know yes. my friends.
2: <laughs> so I've been using this product called Radio by TuneIn for a long time. So it basically allows you to play music on any radio station on the planet, mm. and it's really fun. But now there's something that is so much better because it comes <laughs> with, with a, a map. map. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it's called Radio Garden. And it's basically <laughs> the Earth. and you see, <laughs> you see every station is a little dot, or cities are a little dot, or towns are a little dot. And you
1: click on it and, then and you, you click
2: on it, and you hear that station. So you can go, you know, Southern Alabama.) <laughs> <laughs> and, like, what are they playing? And then the next thing is in some big city in Cuba or in Brazil. That sounds or, cool, actually. It's really, I'm, I'm telling it you, like, what's it called again? It's called Radio Garden. And you turn the globe. Oh, wow. And you think, like, what am I in? Oh, that is yeah, cool. That, that listen, is very that's like, cool. So cool what is Vietnamese music? I have no idea what they're playing and sometimes it's surprisingly similar it's basically like top 40 around the world sure and sometimes it is syncratic. like the oh, that's music you wouldn't really hear so it's Radio Garden like, Radio it? Garden that oh, sounds goodness.
1: great okay those are our picks um,
2: <laughs> <laughs> we are exhausted <laughs> we are we, we are so ready know, for Thanksgiving we really are ready. <laughs> well, I'm ready to <laughs> eat yeah.
1: so happy Thanksgiving happy everyone. Thanksgiving and lots to be thankful for yeah, yeah so much I hope everybody has a wonderful holiday and we'll see you next week. That's it for us. This is After Hours from the HBR Podcast Network. That was a lovely ending. That was really fun. Yeah. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run